Hey everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. And if you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by the one and only Jesse Felder of The Felder Report. Jesse, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, I've got a whole bunch of questions to ask you, and I'm, I'm looking at your most recent report here. But before we do, I would actually just like to kind of zoom out and get a high-level check-in for you here. We're recording this on July 31st, 2023. It's definitely been a pretty interesting year. And I think, you know, if you polled many economists or market participants going into this year, it would not have played out exactly like folks thought. So can we just get your assessment of, you know, why have markets behaved the way that they have this year? And what's your sort of high level framework for how things should continue to play out from here? Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, I didn't anticipate that the economy would be as strong as it is, as it has in the first half, and that the stock market rebound would be as strong as it was. So I'm I'm among those who you know, missed it. Um, I was, you know, short on and off last last year, um, but I did cover all of my shorts, you know, in October. Um, I started adding them back too early into this rally, probably. But I think what's gone on is we had a, a rapid change in monetary policy you know, from zero percent interest rates, massive money printing to a one eighty by the Fed. So we're right. going to start raising interest rates, quantitative tightening, all of this. And so the, the, the bear market last year was really a reaction to that shift in monetary policy, that markets went too far to the euphoric side of things, discounting, you know, wonderful monetary policy and money printing indefinitely into the future. When that reality, you know, didn't pan out, uh, there had to be a repricing of, you know, interest rates and expectations for monetary policy going forward. Um, what typically, you know, plays catalyst for a bear market, though, is not just the monetary policy. It's the the effect, uh, the lagged effects of monetary policy. It's the actual economic uh, recession that usually results and an earnings recession, most importantly, probably for things like the stock market. Because, you know, earnings are down, um, but they're not uh, analyst estimates for the second half of this year and into next year have improved dramatically this this year. So I think what's what's gone on is uh, the market started to discount recession, and now we didn't get that. But this is actually really, really common. Uh, if you see, you know, just look at how this like the soft landing narrative has played out throughout history. It's every single time you get a tightening cycle by the Fed, and the market doesn't immediately, or the economy doesn't immediately go into recession. Everybody starts going, "Oh, maybe things are going to be okay after all. Maybe <laughs> this, this time." We're not going to get a recession, but it's amazing to me how you know quick people are to forget that monetary policy does work with a lag, and that those lag effects are even more important today because of you know some dynamics in in the markets where companies and uh, homeowners and things have been able to lock in low interest rates over the past couple of years, and so the the monetary policy doesn't affect them. Uh, as quickly uh, as p- perhaps it has in the past. So I think we're in this in-between period where uh, people have are started to discount the soft landing narrative when in fact the lagged effect of the monetary tightening is probably going to t- start to take effect here in the second half of the year. So I think there's going to be, uh, you know, a uh, 
a, a real um, reckoning for the, yeah. the soft landing narrative. Uh, is it going to play out that way? And uh, uh, if it doesn't, there's going to have to be another repricing for, for risk assets. And I think that's probably where we're headed. My heuristic for that is, is about 18 months. And we are right now, I think the Fed started hiking in March of last year. So we're about 16 months into when the hiking period started. So I feel like we would expect to see that play out sometime in the next couple of months. And you're, you're absolutely right, too. I think people are generally reactive when it comes to this sort of thing. And there's this sort of, oh, we expected this other shoe to fall, but it hasn't really. And we're looking around, everyone's coming out of their foxhole, and people are wondering if they should start chasing this rally. When it se- And the, the phrase that you keep hearing is Goldilocks economy, right? The, exactly what you just said. The economy is more resilient than we thought. Earnings are down a little bit, not a whole lot, but you know the analysts are starting to forecast better times on on the you know on the horizon. What what's the reason? You know that's such a strong, compelling thing that people want to believe. Why, why might that not be the case? You know, there's one of my favorite indicators I stole from Stan Druckenmiller, um, who pointed out in the early 2000s one of the things that really helped him get back on track after a poor period of trading through the 1999-2000 stock market top was noting in the fall of 2000 that interest rates, the dollar, and oil prices had all been soaring to that point. And those three things together, if you just put them together into a, uh, you know, into a, like a leading indicator for earnings uh, and the economy, they lead with about a two-year time frame. So you get a rapid rise in interest rates, rapid rise in oil prices, rapid rise in the dollar. About two years later, you're guaranteed to have a recession and a decline in earnings. Conversely, you see those things drop dramatically, right? Oil prices, interest rates, and the dollar, um, which we kind of saw, you know, in, in, in 2020, right? We saw interest rates go, you know, drop dramatically. Um, oil prices went negative, Right. So that set the stage for a really you know, strong surge in economic growth and in earnings from 20 from that early 2020 period to early 2022. Right. 20, that's where we saw kind of the peak right. of economic and earnings growth. And since then, we've been decelerating. But if you take those those peaks in, in we still haven't seen really a, necessarily a peak in interest rates, we did see a peak in the dollar, um, you know, recently. Um, and oil prices, you know, peaked, uh, you know, a, a little over a year ago, but they haven't really declined to the point where you would see them be kind of a strong leading indicator for economic growth and, and, uh, and, and earnings. So I still think that indicator to me points to a bottom for the economy and for earnings towards the end of this year. So, you know, that's to me a very helpful way to think about these lagged effects. If you just overlay that as, a, as, an, as an indicator, you can see that that's still exerting a strong negative force on economic growth and, and earnings going forward. And so I think it's, it's at least six months, if not, you know, a year too early to really start getting bullish on the lagged effects of falling interest rates, falling oil prices and a falling dollar. We just haven't seen those things improve enough to really set the stage for a, for a stronger economy and stronger earnings growth ahead. Jesse, it's funny that you bring up that passage from Stan Druckenmiller. In last week's show, I referenced that exact same moment in time and probably speech that Stan gave. And you know, consummate to those indicators that he was looking at, oil and the dollar, 
there's also the tendency in bear markets, some of the strongest rallies, you know, short-term rallies that you'll get is actually during a bear market period. And there's this kind of idea that's sort of a funny high-level idea of the market is going to do the thing that makes the most people lose the most amount of money. And that doesn't really seem to make sense, but it does seem to play out from you know many, many times over. And before I want I want to get to your thoughts on sentiment because you wrote a great post on this. And I'd love to for listeners to just understand where sentiment sort of fits into your investment process and how you use it as a tool. But one mental framework that I just can't abandon is this idea that in 2022, we just had one of the worst years ever, right? For the 60-40 portfolio, if you're on Twitter, you saw this a million times over that, you know, it was just an enormous outlier going back to the 1700s in terms of how poorly that particular construction did. There's always going to be some amount of mean reversion, right? I mean, that that's that maybe is what we've been experiencing thus far this year before the bottom ends up coming in. I mean, how, how do you generally think about playing bear markets and does this this run-up so far in 2023 look like that to you? The strongest rallies occur during bear markets. Um, we've seen a very strong rally in the NASDAQ. What, you know, but when you look at the, the I guess, the, the, the underlying forces of this rally, it's not typically what you would see at a major bear market low. So, you know, to come back to, um, you know, what Stan has taught us uh, through the years, um, he said that the, the most reliable economic predictor he's ever seen is the inside of the stock market. So that is the most economically sensitive sectors within the stock market. So things like, you know, the transportation stocks, materials, retail, um, and small cap stocks. And so when you look at what are small caps doing, because usually when you see a bear market bottom and you're coming out of a, of a major bear market low, Small cap stocks usually lead the rally, right? And small caps have been lagging dramatically uh, through this through this uh, through this rally this year. To me, that is a sign, and and that's you know just points to the the. I mean, a lot of people have talked about this the, the poor breadth that we've seen, right? We've had the magnificent seven, the seven biggest stocks in the market. They're all tech yeah. stocks, essentially, you know, leading leading the way higher with. Everybody else kind of, you know, I think the equal weight versions of the, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 are, are lagging far behind, um, you know, these big stocks. So, you know, that would suggest that usually, you know, again, you see uh, coming out of a major bear market low, breadth is usually very, very strong. Uh, technicians look for things they call breadth thrusts, where you see breadth surge strongly coming out of a bear market low. And that's kind of a sign that, you know, the selling, um, the, the massive kind of selling that created the bear market has reached a selling vacuum, as my friends, friends at Investec would call it. And then, you know, the, the buying that stepped in has created such a reversal that, you know, it float all, floats all boats. And you see those economically sensitive sectors and stocks really kind of lead the, lead the way higher. Um, and that's not been the case. Uh, so I think there's just a lot of things pointing to the, that, the fact that this is very likely um, a bear market rally. Now, I'll, I'll be honest; it's retraced the the losses further than than I expected that it would. So it's been a stronger rally than than I thought. You know, it probably should be. So, um, but I do still think it's it's more characteristic of a bear market rally than what you would expect at a major bear market low coming out of something like that. 
What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. I'd like to introduce you, you, this concept of sentiment because you, you had a great quote from from Howard Marks here, uh, you know, he's one of the greats. And um, the quote is, you know, watch for moments when people are so optimistic that they think things can only get better, an expression that usually serves to justify the dangerous view that there's no price too high. Likewise, recognize when people are so depressed that they conclude things can only get worse, as this often means they think a sale at any price is a good sale. When the herd is thinking is either Pollyannish or apocalyptic, the odds increase that the current level, uh, price level and direction are unsustainable. And you connected this uh, great, great, you know, great sort of timeless observation to NVIDIA. So could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on NVIDIA and just sort of this AI mini bubble more writ large? Usually when you see these new developments in technology and things, I was just talking with a, a good friend of mine about this, the, the people who make the most money are those that are selling the picks and shovels, you know, for the, for the gold rush. They're not yeah. necessarily the people who are, are, are uh, panning for gold. Um, right. And so I, I think that's probably a good uh, metaphor for understanding what's going on in the market today. I think the companies that are, are taking advantage by selling into this AI um, boom, like NVIDIA, right? I mean, everybody needs these NVIDIA GPUs to try and build the large language models and these types of things that are that are popular right now. Um, I think the companies that are, are uh, you know, going to be the ones trying to take advantage of that, the, you know, these models and things might have a more difficult time monetizing it. Um, but I, but I do think the valuation of NVIDIA is, is interesting to look at. I think it trades something more than like 40 times sales right now. Um, you know, famously, uh, Scott McNeely of, uh, Sun Microsystems fame, uh, in 2002 ish timeframe after the crash, the dot-com crash, Sun Microsystems, you know, stock soared in 1999, went down 90% plus, um, you know, in, in the, the years, you know, uh, during the dot-com bust. And it, right in the wake of that bust, he gave an interview to Bloomberg and he said, people who were paying 10 times sales for Sun Microsystems stock were out of their minds. I think he, he quote, he said, what were, what were you thinking? Paying that kind of evaluation for my stock in order to give you a payback on 10 times sales, uh, a 10 year payback, I have to pay out 100% of revenues, right, which means I have to pay no employees, no taxes, no R&D, you know, all this stuff, literally, I have to take every penny of revenue and pay it out uh, in the form of a dividend, which is impossible. Um, and so, you know, to the fact that that was seen by, um, uh, you know, by history as being an absolute obscene valuation is interesting to consider that now NVIDIA trades four times more expensive than Sun Microsystems did at its peak. 
Now, like I said, Nvidia's sales growth is is uh, you know is terrific right now, and they're they literally caught this AI wave perfectly. Um, but the valuation discounts um, a scenario in the future where this growth has to continue indefinitely. They essentially have to find you know uh, three or four other markets like this GPU market in order to maintain that type of sales growth and exponential growth into the future. So even if they're able to sell, you know, these GPUs, at, you know, these exorbitant prices and things for a prolonged period of time, I, I don't think there's any way that justifies the current valuation of the stock that, uh, you know, they have to, you know, investors are extrapolating that type of growth so far into the future that it, it, it's probably going to be exceedingly difficult for NVIDIA to, to meet those expectations. And so that's just representative, I think, of the sentiment out there. That, As Howard Marks says, these things are, are priced for perfection. They're discounting that literally everything's going to go right and nothing could go wrong. And that's, that's a, you know, a, a kind of a, an environment in the market where I think you need to be especially careful. One of the explicit aims of quantitative easing is to push investors out along the risk curve. So, I mean, how much of this risk-seeking behavior, there are a couple of dynamics that, that I think you could that maybe speak to about this. One is the rise of passive investing, right? And this idea of the stock market is less something that you take individual bets on and more just sort of this passive vehicle for saving that goes up on an average of 7 to 9% uh, per, per year. So maybe, maybe it's the passive sort of thing. But there's also the behavior of the Federal Reserve, which is explicitly, these are my, my interpretation, is to say the growth assumptions of the economy that we have wanted and baked into things like the pension system are simply not accurate uh, or they're not bearing out. So we're comfortable blowing a little bit of an asset bubble and pushing investors out along that risk spectrum, hopefully with the idea that you know one of those risky ideas that gets funded ends up being the next big thing and we end up sort of paying ourselves back. I mean, how much of this sort of, like, where do you divide this sort of, you know, if you had to, I hate to say lay the blame at the feet of, but if you had to lay the blame at the feet of kind of these market structure issues in the form of passive or the Federal Reserve in terms of explicitly pushing investors out along that risk curve, I mean, how would you go about that exercise? Well, they're, you know, self-reinforcing trends, right? Uh, Fed lowers interest rates to spur asset assets, and that in itself leads to this idea that you know of the Fed put that markets can't go down uh, for very long before the Fed comes to the rescue. It's that idea that gives investors confidence in I can just buy passive uh, funds, and uh, as long as I hold on, I'll never lose money. Um, that passive buying, um, you know, helps the Fed. Uh, kind of with creating the wealth effect, that was the whole you know point in in the beginning, and and so reinforces that the Fed's doing you know, Fed you did the right thing, right? So then that becomes oh well QE works, and so let's do more of it, and so it's a kind of a self reinforcing thing. But I I think it you know we're going to get get to a point, and I think we're we're there now where monetary the the consequences the I guess unintended consequences of extraordinary experimental monetary policy are going to overcome the the, the intended benefits, um, and I could I mean, you know that's open for debate where that where that point is. 
Um, but I interviewed William White, uh, former head economist of the BIS, several years ago. And we, we talked about this. This was 2018 or something. And I think that's something that uh, there hasn't been enough discussion about. And I hope that, you know, the, I, I think we're starting to see it as a, more discussion of these unintended consequences, whether it's, you know, uh, the uh, wealth disparity, uh, inequality. Um, these types of things um, and how they're exacerbated or even created by extreme monetary intervention is a really important discussion to have. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, with the rise of inflation in the last couple of years, I think we're starting to realize there are real uh, and painful costs to the, the path that we've taken in terms of both fiscal and monetary policy over the last 10, 15 years. And uh, those costs are getting to the point where they're going to start putting the brakes on our ability to continue to pursue these types of fiscal and monetary policies. So I, I think that's, you know, we're at this really interesting juncture right now where, um, you know, as my friend Bill Fleckenstein has said, at some point, the bond market takes the printing press away from the Fed. It's something he's talked about for years. Um, and I don't know if it's the bond market or if it's just, you know, inflation, the, the prospect of uh, systemic uh, inflation uh, really puts it puts a damper on uh, the Fed's ability to continue to pursue these pursue these types of things. And and uh, eventually, you know, I think we have to look to fiscal policy's role in a lot of it also. It's not just not just what's the Fed doing, what's going on. You know, but, you know, fiscal is, is just important, as important. Yeah, I love that that phrase from from Bill, and I think it wasn't actually intuitive as intuitive to me when I first started to dig into this. The sort of self reinforcing or sort of potential for either a virtuous or a negative feedback loop in between bond and currency markets, and you know, with the connection being in sort of simple language, if the way that you if you're a debtor nation and the way that you fund those deficits are by issuing bonds that are denominated in your currency. Eventually, you may run out of buyers for those bonds. You can then you have then have the option to purchase your own bonds by printing your dollars. And this sort of positive feedback loop that was working for you in the beginning has now turned in this sort of death spiral uh, feedback loop going in the opposite direction. It's what you know. I see the end of that eventually for something like the dollar. Prop maybe not in my lifetime, right? Like it's definitely persisted much longer than people want. But this is why people pay attention to Japan. And the transition in, uh, you know, the Japanese central bank, and you've got Ueda, and there was there was actually we're recording this again on the the thirty first, and there was an announcement about an unscheduled bond buying program the other day. That's why people pay attention to this stuff. It seems like that's where the the squeaky link sort of is. Absolutely, I mean, Japan is further down this road of of uh, you know money printing and yield curve control and things that you know it seems the the Fed is on this kind of same trajectory that. Uh, you know, with as much deficit spending as going on, um, the the Fed is probably not going to be able to continue quantitative tightening for indefinitely, right? The the Treasury will not be able to fund, get to a point where it can't fund itself. Uh, you know, without interest rates going to the moon, Fed will Fed will have to probably um, end quantitative tightening. You know, they might not call it that. They might, you know, obviously like. When they intervened um, into the repo markets and things, they didn't. They, they said this is not quantitative easing. You know, same thing with coming to the regional banks. Resting. This is not a reversal. And our, you know, just because our balance sheet's expanding again, this doesn't mean this is you know stimulus. 
uh, we'll probably see something similar at some point with, with where things are headed. But I think it's interesting to look at Japan because something I haven't really seen many people talk about is when you look at, you know, what has, uh, what have markets done in Japan as, as the Bank of Japan has kind of pursued this policy. Um, but it's, it's obvious, right? When you lower interest rates to zero, yield curve control across the yield curve and, and whatever you hold them at, you know, 50 basis points or whatever across the curve, you create a huge incentive for people to take their money and invest it outside of your country, right? And so that's part of the reason why the stock market has done so poorly. Yes, they've had, you know, huge balance sheet, balance sheet recession, you know, over a long period of time, Richard Kuz, you know, written about this stuff. And, uh, you know, deflationary environment in the economy, or at least uh, no inflation um, to speak of. But I think that the incentives created by monetary policy um, are, are important to look at, too, that when there are no, there's no return available, when the, the, the central bank takes away kind of the opportunity for return, it sends uh, investors looking outside, you know, outside their home shores. And I think we could reach reach a point like that, where if inflation were to remain elevated here in the U.S., Fed uh, somehow intervenes in the bond market again to create persistently negative um, uh, real interest rates. You could see, I, you know, I mean, of course, foreign investors are going to say, wait a second, we're not going to be happy with 3%, 4% on a 10-year treasury as long as inflation's running 5, 6, that, you know, we're not going to invest in your, in your bond market. But U.S. investors might do the same thing and say, hey, this doesn't make sense. Let's Let's look outside of our shores, and and if that's the case, and you, and Japan is kind of a model for that, then it's it's probably um, you know uh, difficult to, to imagine um, really good asset price returns, you know, from U.S. based assets, uh, you know, if you have a central bank that's uh, encouraging people to invest outside of. Uh, your shores. So, you know, that's, that's some, a dynamic that I think that not a lot of people are talking about um, that could potentially play out here because we are on that same kind of Bank of Japan trajectory. And for folks that, you know, are a little bit less familiar with this dynamic because rates, right, have been so rock bottom. And to summarize a little bit of what you just said there, Jesse, there are, there are no opportunities domestically to invest the surplus from the economy, right? So Japanese pensions usually will take that money and they'll sort of put it somewhere overseas, they have this gigantic surplus in terms of their foreign investment position. Uh, and then they'll bring it back at various times. And those flows actually tend to be correlated with kind of boom busts in other economies, right? That was a yeah. big dynamic of the dot-com bubble that ended up happening. Yeah. And we, if we don't, if we're not careful, we could actually be on the same, the same path, right? Because if we end up annihilating any real return investments here in the US, we might have to take our own economic surplus and, and invest it offshores. My, my question for you, Jesse, is where would that be? Because the the one of the implicit agreements right between the US and several key countries like Saudi Arabia is we recycle economic surpluses. So if we if we stop being essentially the, the dumping ground or the, the sponge rather for, for that economic surplus, I mean, where does it go? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd point out that it's not just you know Japanese pension funds; it's Japanese retail investors too that have you know said, "Hey, Got we it. can't make a return here. Let's let's." And so it's so the prospect of you know Japan kind of normalizing monetary policy to any respect you know threatens to kind of suck those Japanese funds back home, right? And they say, "Oh, wow, we can with that. We don't have to take currency risk anymore. We can 
you know, we can bring some assets home. And, and uh, but then I think we also see uh, U.S. investors starting to become interested in Japanese equities. I mean, Warren Buffett has really led the way here in, in kind of investing in some of these Japanese trading houses and things. Um, but, you know, it's, it's possible that uh, Japanese corporates could, you know, be, uh, I mean, like I said, the Nikkei's done really well over the last few years. But it could be kind of the start of a longer period for, of, of better, you know, returns on capital and things for these these companies, which could, you know, suck investment capital, um, not just Japanese capital back home, but foreign capital back. Um, but you're right. We've had this kind of agreement with, uh, you know, uh, companies with uh, surpluses to recycle into into treasuries. I think what we've seen, though, recently, and I think my my personal belief is that this is in in uh, direct response to U.S. fiscal and monetary policy, is over foreign our foreign you know trade partners less willing to uh, invest their reserves in treasuries and more of a desire to hold those things in commodities and precious metals, and so I think you see foreign central banks buying a lot of gold. Um, we see, I think, you know, China wanting to would, you know, prefer to probably, uh, stock up on commodities, uh, than, than hold, uh, you know, an overabundance of treasuries. And when you have things like, uh, the, uh, restrictions on, um, uh, the, the penalties and restrictions we put on Russian assets and, you know, things like that as part of the Ukraine war, that's, I think, a very clear warning sign to, to, other countries that, hey, look, you know, yeah, you, we can, um, you know, if you own dollar-based assets, those, uh, we can punish you uh, if we don't like the way that you're, you're behaving in the world. And, uh, you know, that's one incentive. I think another is uh, that when you have an 8%, you know, fiscal deficit uh, with outside of recession, right, that was the worst deficit we saw at the bottom of the financial, the Great Recession, right? We have an 8% deficit today during an economic expansion. That's a sign that, you know, essentially, the you know, the government is spending 8% of GDP above revenue that's coming in. That money essentially is going to have to be created by treasury issuance. And that, that treasury issuance is going to have to be funded by somebody. Foreign governments are saying, we're, we're not going to fund it. And so the Fed's probably going to have to print money to fund that. And so when you start doing this mon- you know, rapid debt growth and then monetization in order to, to, to fund it, I think that's another clear sign to uh, our our foreign um, you know friends and and enemies alike that hey this is not a great asset to hold uh, if if there's going to be structural inflation structural money printing these types of things it's a it's a guaranteed loser over any any real period of time and so uh, so I think yeah I think you know people are going to look to uh, probably hold reserves in things like um, commodities and, and uh, precious metals. And that's, that's where it's going. I'm just, you know, it's not, not even really a thesis. It's just kind of, that's the trend right now. Hey everyone. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know, 
that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. Now, you've heard me say this many times on our show before, but the time to be bearish on crypto was 18 months ago when the Fed began raising rates. Since then, our entire market is down more than 50%. We've had all this bad news. In the last two weeks, we had BlackRock and a whole slew of other institutional investors file for a Bitcoin ETF. This space is not going anywhere. So if you're interested in investing in this space at all, I highly recommend that you attend this conference. The other thing, and I've said this before as well, brand market conferences are the best ones. In the fall market, you have all this retail, all this noise. Now you only have the people that are really here building great products. This one is worth your time 100%. And since you are such good listeners to On Margin, which I really appreciate, giving you all a special 30% discount code. It is Margin30. Now you can access that by clicking the link in the bottom of the show notes. So you can see my fingers pointing down, click that link. Because you are a listener of On The Margin, you get 30% off to the conference. Again, the code is Margin30. We'll see you all there. You know, my last question for you before I want to actually, we've been discussing a lot of very high level topics and we're sort of midway through tech earnings season here. So I want to actually draw us back in here and get some more sort of tactical recommendations from you heading into H2 or year's end. But, you know, my last question for you is the dollar is this very funny, you know, sort of all roads end up leading back to the dollar when it comes to macro. And there are two camps broadly, right, with shades of gray in between them. Which is one to say the dollar is cooked. It's done. The the BRICs are creating their own sort of currency and they're denominating trade in rubles or yen or, or whatever it whatever it is, um, or Chinese Chinese renminbi rather. Um, and, and and the dollar's days are numbered. Then there's this other camp which says, uh, hold on a second, guys. People have been saying this for forty some odd years, right? The dollar is the reserve currency. Eighty percent of global trade is denominated in dollars, and it's not really going anywhere. And there has been you know, ruffles from BRICS-like countries or Saudi Arabia for a very long time. Where do you sort of, you know, get, where do you sort of sit in between those uh, those two camps? And, you know, how much longer is the dollar going to be the preeminent instrument for global trade? You know, that that's the, you know, the, the, $60 trillion question, right? Of, you know, the trajectory of the dollar and, and its use. I think it's clear that uh, to, to most people, I don't think there's really a disagreement that uh, uh, that we're headed. We've probably seen the peak of the dollar being global reserve currency. I think we're we're past that peak. We're past the the peak of uh, globalization, right? That you know we saw peak trade, global trade, and things 15 years ago that peaked and, and rolled over. And I think that's kind of probably around the time where. The idea that of the dollar being the you know some type of permanent uh, global currency is you know peaked around that time too. But these are such long trends; they take so long to play out that I, yeah. I absolutely agree with the people you know with both sides, right? Uh, you know, I, I I do think we're headed towards uh, a new regime, but it takes so long for that to play out that the dollar is not going to you know be supplanted anytime soon, probably. Um, that said, you know, the, the, the idea that um, the dollar is global reserve currency and there is no replacement creates a sense of overconfidence in U.S. authorities that we can get away with anything because there is no replacement for the dollar. And so long as they have that idea in mind, they're comfortable with 8%, you know, 
fiscal deficit to GDP and print and the Fed's comfortable printing money to fund that, which which are the things that undermine the dollar as reserve currency. So I, I think, you know, it, it would actually be really, really healthy for there to be a threat to the dollar as reserve currency, an obvious threat, because it might uh, you know, uh, put the, the fear of God into, you know, fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, and, and you really can't accuse Jay Powell and, and monetary authorities recently, right? They're, they're doing what they, what they should be doing, which is tightening monetary policy. But on the fiscal side of things, there is no incentive or even inkling on either side of the, the aisle to kind of, you know, create any type of a plan or even discuss really addressing the the uh you know eight percent deficit to gdp which is that that absolutely needs to happen uh if you know we're on we are on this trajectory of of widening deficits and the budget office says that you know we are on this endless expansion of of deficits then then the dollars days are numbered as global reserve currency you cannot you know do, do be on this trajectory and expect the world to want to hold dollars for, for very long. So I, I do think we are, we're headed that way, but it just takes so long to play out that it's really hard to kind of try and game it or time it. I'm with you there, Jesse. I'm actually pretty frustrated as a relatively young American. You know, I, I, I find it very frustrating that we're running, you know, the CBO, to, I think the study that you're, the projection that you're referencing $2 trillion a year. And, you know, you and I, and, and many other you know, financial pundits kind of end up talking quite a bit about the monetary side of things and Jay Powell and what did his face look like at this press conference. Well, we might be at risk of missing the forest for the trees because, you know, the the right hand is raising rates, but the left hand is spending $2 trillion a year in deficits. Yeah. So how much can the right hand really do? I'm not actually entirely sure. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and it's really the, uh, you know, Social Security, Medicare that need to be addressed. I mean, it's, it's these types of these types of uh, programs that are at the heart of the widening deficits. And there's n- nobody on either side of the aisle that wants to wants to talk about it, address it, because you can't get reelected as soon as you bring it up, you know, from a hawkish perspective. OK, you're out of office. Get the next guy. And what we need to start doing is is uh, I think voting for for politicians that are willing to address these ideas and that's going to be hard so long as the baby boomers have such a uh, a stranglehold kind of on elections but hopefully that'll be changing up i really am love to see young people talking about these issues because they are the most affected and and i think the real estate market is going to be potentially a you know catalyst for this when you think about okay how can somebody afford to buy, uh, you know, make a first-time home purchase with prices where they are, with interest, you know, mortgage rates where they are, and with their personal financials, you know, set up? You know, usually have student loans and things like that. It's like young people are screwed, and they really need to to recognize who's responsible for, for the situation that they're in right now. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they have the ability to, to make a change through the way they vote. And, and, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see that, that kind of, uh, go that way. It's funny. There's a bit of a tragedy of the commons now, because to, to your point, it's not like there's a politician who's advocating for this and the incentives <laughs> are very clear. It's a, you know, there, there is no choice, right? There's no Ross Perot who's, you know, drawing graphs and that just doesn't exist right now. And you, to your yeah. point, it's actually one of the few things I, I think there are two uh, bipartisan issues in the U.S. right now, which is anti-China and spend money. I mean, those are the two things that 
politicians on both sides of the aisle just are on 100% alignment on. And it's a shame because it obviously can't go on forever. I actually, you know, of all the funny things to come out of ZERP, the, the craziest one is that that doesn't matter. I mean, how many right. times have you heard that over the, over the years? I mean, that's right. just a completely nonsensical thing to say. And yeah. yeah. So Jesse, let's, uh, let's zone in, in in our, in our closing minutes here. And I would love to get a little bit more tactical with you about maybe areas, of the stock market. So obviously I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you're not going to recommend NVIDIA or, or, or any of this, this frothy stuff in the AI section of the market. But I mean, is there any part of the stock market that looks good to you? Big tech had sort of mixed earnings. It was very good for, you know, meta had a big beat, a little bit less good for Netflix and Microsoft. I mean, what do you what do you think is kind of looking good on a on a sector basis here? Yeah, I, I'm really interested in um, you know, commodities again. I think you know, like today, we see the copper price breaking out of a, of a pennant pattern. To me, that's you know, copper is one of the good you know, Doctor Copper, right? Is uh, you know, right. everybody looks to the copper price to kind of forecast the economy? I think it's more important to look at copper to forecast inflation. Right. Mm. Copper has, you know, prices have been correcting for, you know, uh, well over a year. And that was a good leading indicator. We can expect inflation to kind of, you know, become less of a problem. Um, oil price, too, right, did the same thing. Um, oil price has been real strong the last couple of weeks and copper prices, like I said, are starting to break out. To me, that's a, that's a sign that inflation could potentially become a problem. Um, you know, uh, again, uh, everybody thinks the inflation battle has been won. Uh, and I think it's way too soon. It's, it reminds me of the, you know, uh, George W. Bush um, mission accomplished speech, uh, you know, on the deck of the aircraft carrier six months into the, uh, you know, campaign in the Middle East and Iraq. Um, you know, so I, I think we saw, right, 2022 was a year where you saw a rotation out of tech. And into like energy was the best performing sector. Commodities did well, those types of things. This year has been a reversal of that, right? Money goes back into tech, comes out of, you know, energy. I, I think we're probably going to see another reversal here where money is going to say, oh, mm. wait, if inflation is not beaten, then uh, maybe it's not great to own, um, you know, these things that benefited from the low interest rate, low inf inflation environment, maybe I do need to own more of these things that benefit in an inflationary environment, and that's commodities and energy. Jesse, if um, if folks want to find out more about you or the good work that you do, or become subscribers to the Felder Report, I mean, what's the best way to for them to do that? Yeah, it's my website is thefelderreport.com. Um, I put out a free. Saturday morning email, um, which just features the five things that I found during the week that I found most interesting or compelling. Uh, it's usually, you know, a couple of links, maybe a chart, um, an interview. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's you can sign up right there on the homepage of my website. I'm also on Twitter, or I guess I should call it X. I'm not really sure. I'm not sure uh, how to do that days, either. Yeah. Um, it's changing so fast. I can't, I can't keep up, but I, I tweeted a ton of the stuff that I'm reading and charts and things that I find interesting. It's just at Jesse Felder. Yeah. What are we going to say for tweeting? I mean, he, Twitter's one of those companies that had a word, you know, it was, uh, I'm going to call an Uber. I got to tweet. Now I'm going to yeah. X. It just doesn't really sound the same, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't feel the same either. You know, it's like, I, I'm not really too pleased with kind of being sucked into the whole Elon, uh, you know, evil empire. <laughs> I know. We'll see. 
Yeah. Jesse, it's been a real pleasure. Really appreciate your time and we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Thanks. Yeah, I enjoyed it.